On this episode of the Duke Tip Podcast, we talk about the power of creative writing and building empathy in the classroom. Hi, I'm Tracy. She's Katie. And he's Michael. We're all colleagues at Duke Tip, the talent identification program. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging gifted students, inspiring them to take pride in their abilities, and fostering their educational, social, and emotional development. That's Duke Tip, and this is the Duke Tip Podcast. We talk about motivating academically talented students, following through on your passions, and learning to love learning. We'll talk to educators, guidance counselors, admissions officers, scientists, authors, artists, entrepreneurs, journalists, and anyone else who might have something to say to the parents and teachers of academically talented students and to the students themselves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number five of the Duke Tip Podcast. Katie, Michael, how are you guys doing? I'm doing very well. We just opened up the fourth through sixth grade talent search and lots of people are coming to apply online at tip.duke.edu. So if you have a gifted fourth through sixth grader, come on down and do the same. Must be October. It is. (laughs) Uh, I'm doing well as well. Uh, I'm excited that I'm actually at podcast number two in a row for me. So this is very exciting. It must be October because this means it's not the summer, which means I can be at these things, which is very, uh, an upgrade for me. I'm doing well. Uh, We're recording on a Tuesday, but this is my Monday because I was out of the office this past weekend for something fun that I'll talk about later. So I'm very excited to introduce our guest for this episode. Stuart Albright is a teacher and author with a trophy shelf full of teaching awards, including the Milken National Educator Award, which Teacher Magazines calls the Oscars of Teaching. Yay! Uh, We won't play you off by music if you get too long-winded. We're going to let you talk as much as you want here for the Oscars of Teaching. He's written one novel, Bull City, which was inspired by his work as a high school English teacher. And he's written several nonfiction books, the latest of which, A World Beyond Home, is what Stewart has dubbed a call to action for teachers, parents, and an entire generation of students. And if that weren't enough, he is also the founder of McKinnon Press, which has been promoting the work of young authors in North Carolina since 2005, including, I have to mention, a really exciting slam poet and hip-hop artist who goes by the name G. Yamazawa. Stuart Albright, thanks so much for being here, and welcome to the Duke Tip Podcast. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to Stuart about his work in the classroom in our second segment, but first, oh, you know what I learned? All I learned was we know nothing. And I learned it from watching you. Oh, you know what I learned. This is a segment in which we describe the single most fascinating thing we've each learned recently. Michael and Katie, what have you guys learned lately? Well, hands down, I've been reading about the Navajo Code Talkers in World War II, in which they took the alphabet for the English language, and they assigned an animal to each letter, and they would spell out their messages using the Navajo word for that animal. So B was for bear, and it turns out the Navajo word for bear is shush. So next time someone turns around and tells you to shush, you can scream and yell where and run out of the room. (laughs) Why have you been reading about that? How did that come up? I love World War II. I'm kind of a World War II freak. So I was just reading about the sinking of the Indianapolis, and I followed that by Code Talkers. I went through Stephen Ambrose, and there's nowhere else to go (laughs) but the Pacific Ocean front. (laughs) 
Michael, how about you? A little uh, less uh, hard hitting, but I learned just yesterday that uh, Dan Brown has actually produced a, a fifth Robert Langdon book, which I will admit are guilty pleasures of mine. Um, I This is the Angels and Demons Da Vinci Code series, for those of you who might not be uh, super referent thereto. Um, I actually argued in some of my uh, graduate level history classes that um, uh, Dan Brown might be the single most important historical author in the last 30 years or so because he made people actually fact check him, <laughs> which meant they were actually learning the history behind all the things that he was having fun with. Nice. Uh, so what did I learn? I was in Seattle this weekend for a conference and I went on a, after the, the conference day had finished on Saturday, I went on a tour of the underground area in Seattle. So I learned that Seattle was originally built sort of on tidelands and the ground slash sea level. And that if you walk in downtown Seattle today, you're actually walking between one and two stories above the original ground level of the city because of the great Seattle fire. Uh, the original city, which was at ground level and flooded all the time and had all these problems, it burned completely down like 31 blocks. Uh, and the engineers got wise and said, hey, we should probably build, but this time mow better. And we're going to be higher than than tidewater level and we're going to use stone. So I went on this great creepy underground tour and learned that about Seattle. Stuart, what did you learn this week? So the, I guess the biggest thing I've learned is um, I just got through reading uh, Brene Brown's book, Rising Strong. Uh, she's a sociologist and uh, never heard of her before, which I don't know how I missed her because uh, she's all over it. Like her TED Talk is one of the most popular TED Talks of all time about vulnerability. And um, so uh, as a teacher and as a former football coach, I was a football coach for 14 years at Jordan. I've dealt with a lot of criticism, uh, people who throw, throw tomatoes metaphorically at you all the time. So um, her writing about uh, being in the arena and not listening to the critics uh, who are not you know, on the stage with you, but are outside uh, in the stands, the cheap sheets, the cheap seats uh, was, uh, was just really gratifying for me just to put that in perspective because I feel like I never really had a way of framing my, like, how do I deal with all of these voices of antagonism that I deal with on a regular basis, just in a, a big public setting with all kinds of people. Yeah, she's she's very, like, I think Oprah has a lot of connections with Brene Brown, too. Like, maybe they do, they've done some talks together right, and stuff right. like that. Um, I think it's what's really interesting about that, too, is that being a teacher, we have so many teacher stakeholders uh, here at TIP, people who look to us, who are our partners out in the world. Um, they really get that, that sense. You're getting criticized by people who do have, like, uh, they, they do have a stake in the game, right? Like, they're, that you're the, 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 parent in some cases, you're mm -hmm. another teacher, whatever, um, you're involved in the education of that kid, but you've got to also be able to stand your own ground as the, as the leader of your classroom. So that's, that's tricky business. I think a lot of our listeners probably get that one. Yeah. When you said cheap seats, I thought you were going to say cheap shots because really there is a connection <laughs> there. Could you uh, give us her name and the name of that book again? I think I'd like to put it on my list. Uh, Brene, not, so I thought it was Renee, but Brene Brown, uh, Rising Strong. Um, so she I kind of began this this whole thought process with a book called Daring Greatly, which pulls from the uh, the great Roosevelt quote about um, being in the arena and uh, you know I'm like talking about like who we should be listening to the critics or the people who are there with us in the battle um, with the sweat and the blood on our faces and so to speak. So um, so yeah, so it was a, it was really just kind of reinforced a lot of what I hoped to you know to be as somebody who can move forward and be brave, but also not listening to people that are there to kind of take the, the cheap shots, as you say. 
Yeah, I think one of the other things, um, especially from a teacher coach perspective, um, being able to then model that out for the young people who are, you know, looking to you right. to be able to sustain that kind of energy and dedication um, with plenty of cheap shots, cheap seats, cheap lots of things. Right. Um, uh, yes, the the uh, parent involvement, especially in the uh, co-curricular, extracurricular arena, uh, if we're going to extend the arena metaphor here, um, you know, uh, a whole lot of involvement in, especially at the high school level with sports. Um, you know, I, you don't know what's best for my kid. He's never going to be able to make it. She's not going to learn what she needs from you and being able to kind of soldier on through that and help the, the students, student athletes, learners, youth, um, kind of grow with you through that journey. Um, knowing that they're going to persevere, um, because of the work and the modeling that you've been able to do for them. I was thinking too, about not just modeling, but also, um, trying to help because it's, it's hard to, to, it's hard to tell someone to listen to themselves mm -hmm. because that like, how do you get that across really, you know, tell them to, I think we talked about this in, even in an earlier podcast, like how do we encourage students to listen to their own voice when they've got so much going on and so many other voices and positions of authority, giving them advice and even giving the advice, it gets quite meta, right? Like listen to this one person, tell you to listen to yourself. Um, so I think it has to come from a modeling place. Like they have to be able to see it to believe it and sort of see it in action. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And take risks because you cannot grow unless you take risks. And if you're always worried about getting it done perfectly, you're never going to try new things or you'll try far less new things. Right. Great. So I think we should move on to tell me more. This is the meat of our podcast. You look like you want to tell me something. Tell me something true. I have so much to learn from you. This is the part of the show where we delve into our guest's area of expertise. Stuart, our last episode was all about the anxiety and the excitement that comes with back to school time. I wanted to ask as a teacher, what is the, this time like for you or that time uh, a little bit beyond that now, but what is the lead up like for you um, back to school the first couple of weeks of school? Mm, oh, it's miserable. Oh, I, hate it. <laughs> I, I mean, in some ways, uh, I, I think uh, when it, I've made a con concerted effort the past couple of years to uh, to try to mentor new teachers, uh, especially the ones I see who seem to be uh, overwhelmed and stressed out. Um, and uh, this, this is my 17th year overall teaching. And uh, to this day, every class, every class that I begin, um, there's like this feeling of nervousness at the beginning of every class. I mean, maybe that's because I'm an introverted and an extroverted job. Um, but a stat, what you do to set the tone every day is important and it makes your job a lot easier if you do it well. So, um, yeah, so every day I, there's like a little bit of nervousness as I go to work, a little bit of nervousness as I, as I teach. And it's, I used to be myself over, I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm, you know, I'm 39 years old. I've done this job for a really long time. Why am I still feeling this way? And, um, and I've had some other veterans who've kind of come to me and said, listen, that's, that's not a bad thing. That means that you still care about what you're doing. Um, so I, I've tried to really, you know, humanize myself to these these young teachers who just think, you know, surely I've got it all figured out after all these years, and, and I don't. Um, which gets back to that, you know, the Brene Brown point of vulnerability and just being willing to to not have it all figured out, which actually makes you a better teacher because it means that your brain is kind of more sharply focused on uh, being aware of all of your surroundings and, and making an impact. So the, the beginning of the school year is tough because it's like, you know, that first day you see the kids coming down the hallway. I'm at the very end of my hall. So there's like this, it's like this gigantic walk of all these kids. And you know, this kid could come in and make my life 
miserable for the year, potentially, if they have a personality that doesn't mesh with the other students. Um, or this could be a kid who comes in very quiet and I know nothing about them, and there's this whole backstory that I'll hopefully get to learn over the course of the year. And, um, and that's just something that's exciting about it, too, is that no two kids are the same, and um, the no two years are the same for me as a teacher. Uh, so it's exciting. It's stressful and miserable and wonderful all at the same time. Mm. Um, so that's, at least that's my experience with it. Do you think that um, you talked about sort of humanizing yourself for younger teachers? Do you do a little bit of that with the kids too, or do you just not let on? Oh, no, let I, on? I do it. All, and that's another thing that I've <laughs> learned too is that, um, yeah, you've got to, um, that kind of gets to my, a little bit to my failure as instructive, my, <laughs> my homework of what I needed to, to write up was, uh, you know, I used, as a as a new teacher, one, I wouldn't tell them how old I was because I didn't want them to know that I was only 22 years old. You know, starting out here, I, you know, I had a kid that was 19 or 20 in my class. I was like, yeah, this guy's two years younger than me. We could be colleagues here, so to speak. Um, so I was afraid to let them know how old I was, but I was also afraid to let them know that I was uh, didn't have it all figured out because I thought if they saw me make a mistake, then they would think that I was um, unprofessional and not... Uh, in a position where I could actually be teaching them. Um, but what I've learned is that, one, you do need to be professional and you do need to know your stuff and prepare. But when you make a mistake, you got to own it and you got to laugh about it because that's one thing about teenagers. Man, they can sniff out <laughs> a fake in a heartbeat. They, they know so quickly when you're trying to be something that you're not. And um, so I've just learned that I've just got to roll with that. And I've and it's actually worked to my benefit, I feel like, because if you get the kids laughing along with you, they see that you're human, then it just it, it kind of, breaks down that that barrier that wall between the adult and the child and, and you realize okay we're kind of all in this together so when they make a mistake you know they can also see it as okay this is this is okay this is part of the process so I was gonna ask um, could you tell us a little bit about your two students that you have in your in your up, in your latest book a world beyond home mm -hmm. I mentioned one of them earlier but right. I wanted to hear from your perspective about these two students as they came into your classroom yeah so uh, so I knew I wanted to write a book about about teaching in some way um, but I didn't want it to be just kind of a book full of uh, statistical information about trends and society with kids and selfishness and social media and all this stuff although that I wound up writing about that some in my book but um is I'm a teacher of storytelling and uh, so I realized that the best way to tell the story of what kids are going through what they're dealing with is to have the stories of two of my students tell that story and these are obviously not representative of all kids but um, the two kids that just have fascinating stories of coming from a place of deep insecurity and and many flaws uh, you know being finding uh, their voice through writing and and leading them on from uh, to do some amazing things so so G was uh, um, in my class as a sophomore he was the biggest drug dealer at our school he was just a pain in the butt he was late every day we got into arguments in class all the time I'd kick him out he'd come to detention uh, so I had a lot of time I got to talk with him because he was in detention all the time but um, <laughs> so uh, yeah I did I was able to uncover that he, he was a pretty good poet. Um, uh, he was more into hip hop and rap, and he didn't necessarily see that that part of that was like his ability to, to rhyme and with rhythm was very much poetry uh, until he got kicked out of school, which I, never, I knew was inevitably going to happen. I'd warned him about it. He said, you know, my identity, your identity is a football coach and as a teacher, and you know, your football players, that's their thing. But for me, it's dealing. That's what I do. That's pe what people know me for. So he got kicked out went to the alternative school and then realized that all of his so-called friends who he thought loved him so much, once they realized he wasn't there to give them a steady supply of drugs, they stopped calling him. So he went from being what he thought was the most popular guy around campus to having no friends at all. 
Mm-hmm. So in a, in a state of just utter, just like, and this moment for him of not knowing what to do and uh, feeling like his life was just completely, the rug was under this taken out from under him. He, uh, somebody invited him to a poetry slam in Chapel Hill and he'd never heard of a slam before. And he went there and he was blown away by it. And it kind of was this neat blend of him, of, of his interest in hip hop and rhyme and rhythm. And it was something to do because he was, had nothing to do. So he, uh, at the end of the year, he got accepted back at Jordan High School. And he emailed me and he said, I'm going to be back. Can we start a poetry club here? And I kind of rolled my eyes because I, I, mean, I, I didn't know whether, you know, I'd been kind of burned by this guy a number of times. But I said, OK, we'll start it. So we started this club and it's really grown and by leaps and bounds every year since then. And, uh, and G uh, found his calling. And now he's a professional spoken word poet and he's, he travels around the, the world uh, making much, much more money than uh, any teacher I know <laughs> as, a, uh, as a spoken word poet traveling to universities um, and, and also as a, as a hip hop artist. Uh, he had his, his uh, most recent album was um, uh, highly decorated and had a number of songs that went viral. Um, but in the, the midst of it, it's just really made an effort to reach out to young people who, were, who felt um, disconnected from school like he was. Um, so I'm really proud of where he's come from. Uh, so the other student was uh, Sadiq Haynes, who um, was one of my football players and uh, was a guy that I just thought, thought saw as this kind of six foot three, 300 pound teddy bear of a human being who everybody kind of knew and loved for his gentle nature. But he was actually, um, on the side, he was a, a, um, a gang member. And uh, he had an incident at a party where there was an altercation and someone was uh, was uh, threatened him. So they, they went after these guys and looking for them in their car in the West End of Durham with uh, Sadiq didn't have a gun, but all three of the friends in the car did. And if they'd found them, they would have probably shot, shot that person and he would have been in jail right now. Um, and they didn't, so gratefully. So that was kind of a turning point for him. So he kind of got out of gang involvement at that point. And it just so happened that I was around the time he was able to take, uh, I was my first creative writing class that I taught back in 2005 or six. And uh, he was a senior that year and he, he began to realize how fascinating it was to learn the stories of his classmates, people who were not like him. And he, and he has taken that love of learning other people's stories with them. Uh, in the college, he was an All-American football player at the University of Delaware. He won um, the ESPN Good Hands Award for the top uh, college athlete for community service. Um, and now he's a college football coach at Sam Houston State and has um, you know, just done phenomenal things with community service and uh, impacting young people. So as a teacher, there's nothing more yeah. uh, gratifying than you, to see your, your kids grow up and kind of own their who they are as adults and uh, make an impact on the world around them. So the book is kind of follows their journey and, um, and kind of in their words, like how did they evolve into the, the people that they are? Oh, that's cool. That's great. I'm curious what that first poetry club meeting was like. What did you do? This idea sort of came up and you said, okay, but. Yeah, well, it's one of those things where it's like we, as teachers, you have to walk that fine line of having complete control of your classroom. And then at the same time, allowing for kids to take risks, knowing that it could fall, they could fall on their faces. And then inevitably, if you are the sponsor or the teacher, allowing them to fall on their faces, it kind of can make you look like you're falling on your face. Um, and I've been burned many times by that, but I've also, but it's opened up these experiences for kids to do things they wouldn't normally do. And then when they do that, then, um, you know, I mean, as a teacher, you get credit for it. I mean, I've had these awards, made, I, I get uncomfortable when people talk about them because it's really less, I feel like it's less about me. I've just, I've been lucky to have some kids that I took a, ri- a risk on, let them do some cool things and they've really done some amazing things. And I've just kind of gotten that reflected glow off of, off of what they've done. 
Well, and they probably they must have felt safe too, you know, because I mean, you're talking about um, both creative writing and poetry; they're vulnerable art forms, really. Right. And in, in my classes, I've always really tried to create a family atmosphere because if you want kids to take an intellectual risk and to write about things that are mm-hmm. important to them, then they need to feel like this is a safe place where they're not going to be judged. Um, my classes are always big, 35 to 38 students, very diverse uh, in ability level and socioeconomic ability. Uh, levels and uh, so it's just important I think that kids feel like that they um, they can hear someone's story and take it in and empathize because empathy is oh, it's just, it's such an important skill for kids to learn and sadly so many kids really aren't learning it in the way that they need to. Could I ask you a question about that? Sure. One of the things I've noticed at TIP both with the submissions we get for our student publications in our creative writing classes is that teenagers sort of naturally gravitate toward writing about the dark things in their life. Mm. Their mother's very, very sick. Their father lost their job. And I think it helps them cope with that and process it by writing about it. But sometimes I wish that I had a way to reach out and encourage them to look at the good things in their lives, the stable things when they write, to find a way to articulate that as well. Do you find that happens in your classes? And how do you focus your students on what they write about? I think the way that I've done that is by simply, yeah, I agree. They, like Kids do write. But I think you, you've also, you hear the argument that says that all artists must have suffered and lived miserable lives <laughs> of uh, debauchery to be able to write anything of worth, which I, I really... As a writer, I hope that that's not true because yeah. I don't, I don't want to go through my period of alcoholism and near you know poverty and despair <laughs> to be able to actually think that I can put out anything creative. But I think that you know, kids, when they when they feel an intense feeling of, of pain and loss, I mean, they do feel like the world is crashing in on them and mm-hmm. it's all about them. So, but what I have found is that when they read about those similar stories from their classmates, um, it gets them outside of themselves. Hmm. It gets them out of that that fog or that funk where they have to actually look at somebody else and say. While this person has either a similar experience to what I'm having to go through, or they've got it a whole lot worse than I do, or maybe there's something I can do to help this person. And when you're helping somebody else, you're not as concerned about your own uh, specific problems. And that's not to diminish the problems of, the, of those kids. It's just that you know to, to look outside of yourself, that's one of the big things I, I tried to write about in this book, is getting kids to see outside of themselves, to, to the world outside of themselves. Um, that will help them to become better, more well-rounded adults. So the parents, the parents of our kids who maybe focus their writing on all these dark things and all, they shouldn't worry. That's a natural way of processing the world. I, I think it is. I think that it's um, if it's solely focused on any one thing, I think mm-hmm. that's where the issue is. If like all they're doing is focused on a themselves or a on their pain, then that's where the problem arises. But it's a great to me a gateway for getting them to think about creativity and think about their writing as a way of processing their own issues and then to process the issues in the world around them. But that is the big challenge. Like, how do you get kids outside of their own heads? How do we do that? I mean, especially in a world where uh, you're carefully creating your personality via social media. Mm-hmm. And, and so people see who, who you want to be portrayed, whether that's, that's real or not. And uh, that, to me, is, um, that is a real, real thing we need to be thinking about with uh, uh, how do we approach social media as an adult and the way the kids, kids view it. So that, those are conversations that I feel like I've had a lot more of lately with kids in my classes. So you've been teaching for 17 years, right. you said. So you've seen the, the shift that social media has brought mm-hmm. um, even to your students. Is there, do you have an example or do you have, do you have thoughts about that shift from you know, classes where that wasn't, uh, where people weren't cultivating their personal brand via Instagram or Snapchat or what, you know, and now they are. 
Right. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah, well, and I feel like I have to avoid the knee-jerk reaction of thinking I'm just an old guy who complains about wishing things were the way that they used to be <laughs> because I think that's what well, we as adults were often guilty of that. But, um, but it, what's been interesting to me is how quickly kids will admit how uncomfortable they are by this duality of uh, I am some way, I have to portray myself in a certain way that may be similar to who I am, but um, it's a feeling of uh, just there's some stress involved with that. And how hard it is to disconnect themselves from that because they feel it, they feel it so presently in their lives. And if they are so, the idea if you take their phone away, it's like you're taking away their identity. And it's not because that their phone is something they need to make phone calls on or to text. It's because it's their way of communicating who they are to the world. And if you take that away, who are they? Which is one thing I love about writing and publishing the work of my students is it allows them to present themselves to the world in a way that's different from this traditional model. Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about just the, um, I, take a, I take a couple of continuing studies classes at Duke and visual media studies, and we talk a lot about social media. Um, and there is, uh, there's a turn, I think, with some of Duke students who are, you know, sort of 18, 19, 20. Some of them are just like, I have to step away. I don't want any identity. So there's an opportunity at the beginning of the course to share your your internet handle if you'd like. Um, just because we're studying social media, we'll see each other's social media and talk about it or whatever. Um, and that there seems to be a shift of some students who are just like, I can't anymore. Like I, they, they reach a breaking point of like, I've been doing this since I was 10 or 12 or whatever. And I just, I can't keep up with this. I don't want to be walking around with the phone all the time and I'm shutting it all down. Um, so it just, I think there's some, we're seeing some waves cresting, I think. Yeah. And, and it's impossible not to compare yourself to other people on social media and you have to combat feelings like jealousy or I'm not worthy. This person has a much better life. And when you're a teenager, that's, you don't need that. You're already struggling with who you are and trying to find your inner strength. I think probably it will reshape everything. Do you find it's hurt the authenticity of what people write? They're so used to posturing on social media. They bring mm. it into your classroom. I think it, it hurts the, um, I think there's a level of stream of consciousness and sloppiness in writing because mm -hmm. there's they're they're used to being it's essentially because kids are writing now more than they ever have it's just they're writing in very short compact uh you know posts and whatever have you you tweets and and text and um but it's all very um disconnected and unformulated and kind of like first thing that comes to their head and uh there's, there's not a much thought process brought into it. And certainly, like, in fights that happen at our school, um, and I think in most high schools now, almost all involve around uh, miscommunication over stuff that's that's distributed online. Wow. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's this brave new world that we have, we have entered, and I think we, we in the education community are just now trying to wrap our heads around how do we, how do we deal with this in a way that's um, where kids just aren't going to completely see us as coming down upon them as – people who don't understand them, so to speak. So it's a major issue. I think um, I, I see enough glimmers of hope along what Tracy was saying, where I, I don't know if I'll call it waves, but pendular motion, that there can only be so long that a, a human being can be attached to their digital identity. And then eventually it, it will have to just swing back the other direction. So it might take care of itself. Right. Um, that's my, my, my hope, too. I, I hope that that's, that's the way that it's going. Yeah. Um, 
So wanted to bring it back to the two students you mentioned in your book, um, Sadiq and G. These two students are clearly very gifted. That's what that's what I would say. I think I think we would agree on that here at Tip. But what do you think the parents of more traditionally gifted or academically talented students can learn from their stories? They're two different stories. Um. And when you say traditionally gifted, like how the, how would you define that? I guess for me, first off. Um, I mean, I think um, I, I, how I would, and maybe you guys can jump in. Um, so I think we have students who are gifted, but have found their outlet within the traditional school system mm. in one way or the other. That doesn't mean that that's the only outlet, um, and certainly doesn't mean that. I mean, f- you know, from your story, from your book, it sounds like G and Sadiq found it too. Right. Um, maybe took a roundabout way out right, and then right, back right. in, right? Yeah. Probably really verbally articulate, but not necessarily super creative or don't have outlet that they can go to for an alternate form of expressing themselves. So within yeah. their traditional channels. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have, I just have a new student just who came to my class yesterday and uh, we're, we're writing these 1,000 word short stories. And she came to me in tears today and she said, you know, I've I can do essays. I can do them so well, but don't ask me to. Please don't ask me to do anything that involves mm. creativity. And uh, so that was interesting. So I've um, mm. then I've got other students who are it's they 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 can tell stories so fluidly, but you know, getting to the more traditional form of of, of writing is difficult. So and then I've got kids now because I teach one section of a traditional English class, and then you know four sections of creative writing. So I've got some students who are in my traditional English class and in my creative writing class, and they're simultaneously working on formal essay writing and short stories, which are two very different ways of communicating. Um, So I think that the biggest thing is just for, as a parent, exposing your kids to as many different kinds of ways of using their brain as possible. Yeah. Um, And just getting them out of, I think for a kid, you find what works and you stick with that pattern because as kids, you don't want to rock the boat. Let's go through the, the, the calm waters. It's finding a way to get kids to go outside of their comfort zone without feeling like it's, they're going to fall off of a uh, cliff. Right. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a huge challenge. And I think um, there's been a lot of research, you know, Angela Duckworth with, with her book, Grit, which is, to me is a great you know, example about that, 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 that so many kids, you know, they have this a traditional easy way of doing their work it comes naturally to them and they stick with it and it works it's a good formula it gets them through high school they get to college and then they have a very difficult time thinking outside of that traditional model and they really struggle in college and um, so I think it's just it's pushing kids in a lot of different outlets which is why I think that it's so important that kids can be well-rounded that they have interests in different kinds of things um, and by doing that it, it doesn't mean that you're, you're asking a kid that, to be a concert pianist or that you're asking them to uh, then to be a um, the next poet laureate laureate but you do need to have ways of looking at the world that are different from something that you know works extremely well right yeah that's kind of would be my approach one of the things that I really like talking to any of our prospective staff who work with our student population here um, is that, especially with our uh, seventh graders, for example, who are doing one of our summer face-to-face programs for the first time, um, they spend so much time in this traditional model of giftedness um, where they are the gifted student and that becomes their kind of crowbarred into that spot identity, but then they get this alternate path 
when they find themselves. I think uh, Tracy and I have talked about this off the podcast, obviously, about you know being able to find your tribe and things like that. Um, and when you find that, you get to be the rest of who you are. Um, and it doesn't have to be at, a, at an organization like ours, but you know whether it's through a creative writing uh, class or a poetry slam that you find yourself at, or football practice, where you get to be the rest of that person. And to get back to what Stuart was saying about kind of developing that well-rounded human being who is by default a learner and a grower, um, you know, that, and that is kind of the kind of thing that has to start at home, but should then also be, you know, brought further um, by the education system and any programs that might be able to provide these students these resources. I'm also pretty sure that pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone and trying new things without feeling like you're going to fall off a cliff, if you can keep doing that as an adult, I'm pretty sure that's what keeps you from getting old. I think that's what keeps you young. <laughs> yep, I, I would agree with you on that. Well, we, I was having a conversation this morning about um, the, the, requ the requirements or the guess the context for synthesis, right? Like that, what, what do you need and what are the ingredients for being able to synthesize and generate new information? And it is beyond, you know, um, what we might see as metrics of success in like a math test, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think some of that too plays in is, is, you know, we could talk about talent if we wanted to use gifted, gifted lingo. Um, but we could also talk about what are the, what what's the setting that will allow students to take new information and generate new information out of that and synthesize what they're dealing with and actually create. And mm -hmm. I think that's a different type of, that's absolutely part of giftedness, but it's not the part that's traditionally measurable. Right. Well, you know, I was struck. They've um, announced two Nobel prizes as of today, six winners. Every single one of them looks like they're 70 or above. And I look at them and I think it took a lifetime for that talent to come to this kind of fruition and to develop. How do you deal with kids that are just sort of used to instant gratification or instant post or instant everything? Yeah, well, I guess one thing I try to do with my students is walk that fine line of encouraging them while also putting them in their place a little bit, uh, which is in a way that's, uh, I mean, I, I, I come across as a teacher who's not non-threatening. Um, or at least I tried to do that. And part of the reason why I'm very conscious about that is by coming across as non-threatening, it allows me to challenge students in a way that if it was, a, if, if my tone of voice was different or the way that I was, if I was domineering over them, uh, they would probably be pretty offended by that. They would think mm -hmm. that I'm, yeah, I mean, you're questioning, questioning my, my academic ability or you're questioning my, uh, you know, who I am and I've got this figured out. And, and, uh, and usually, and, and my response is, no, you don't, you don't have it figured out. And my, my job is to make you a better writer. If you, if you come into my class and you think you're a great writer and you don't get any better, then you're not going to get a very good grade in my class. Um, and, and perfectionist students, that, that, can, uh, that can bother them because they're used to being able to have complete control over what they do and, and having it all figured out. Um, but I, I don't have it figured out as an adult. I mean, I try, I try to, but uh, I think when I feel like I have it figured out is when I wind up falling on my face. And I think kids need to, uh, need to be able to check themselves a little bit and have that self-regulating uh, part of their brain that's that that kind of chimes in when they feel like they're getting too big for their britches so to speak to say uh you need to kind of be humble and you need to and make sure you're constantly growing and you're constantly learning in different ways do you find that um because of the way that social media is changing writing do you find that kids are resistant to revision in your creative writing class they are 
They they are because I, I feel like that's uh, the idea of a finished product is simply I'm going to post post it out there. And, right. And mm-hmm. the consequences they don't they don't realize the consequences of it's out there and it's never going away unless it's Snapchat, which that is why they all do it because they think it's, it's <laughs> never. But even that is their ways of getting around that, and they don't realize it. And kids get in a lot of trouble these days over over that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, and so like when we, the beautiful thing I love about publishing a book is that you know it is this permanent final thing in an anthology of thirty students. Uh, there's also they realize, whoa, if I don't if I don't edit my own section, it's going to make the entire book look bad. I'm not hmm. making myself look bad. I'm making everybody look bad. Um, so it kind of gets to this idea of, of getting kids to feel a part of a community and if, if feel like that they matter not just to themselves but to the people around them. And if you matter to the people around you, you're going to go that next step to do something because it matters to the group as a whole. Um, and if we can create aspect of that, that kind of environment, and, and it doesn't have to be a class or a team, there's all kinds of ways to do it, just in the way that we go about our community, our neighbors, that we all matter to each other, that to me will make our society a lot more of an empathetic society. Yeah, that's spoken definitely by someone who both is a coach and a, and a cultivator <laughs> yes, of an academic community. I'm like, yes, that makes total sense for both. I was going to say, to me at least, writing is just a fascinating vehicle for this message because I think perception, base level perception, writing is this very individual art, this very individual craft. But writing as this collective, writing as this community, and as this building tool for that is, is just kind of this thing that I don't think a lot of people would think of initially when they think I'm a writer, therefore I go off and I go click, click, click on my really old typewriter cause it's cool. Right. But when it's this writing as part of the good, it, it's, it's a very different paradigm. And not, wow. to, and not to be so down on all, you know, internet, because I mean that we were able to, you know, now people who live in you know, isolated parts of the country now can build these communities online, which is, so there's a lot of good things that come mm-hmm. from that. I was going to ask about what the role or what is the potential role that you think creative writing could play in middle school and high school education. But I think we kind of already answered that. Yeah. Yeah. The role. What what would you say it was then finding your voice, connecting with other people, uh, learning your individual strengths? Um, Yeah. And thinking of thinking of your voice as communal. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those those would all be be things that um, that that would come to me and. yeah, just finding your voice and, and who you who you are as an adult, and I think you, you really start that process as early as middle school. Um, like who who do I want to be? And we ask kids all the time as early as kindergarten, who do you want to be when you grow up? And it's kind of a cliched question, but it, it really is getting at this point of getting kids to start thinking about it. who do you want to shape yourself to be when you reach that stage of adulthood. And you might have a, have a five year old and a seven year old, and both of both of my boys are constantly trying on these new identities of who they want to be whether it's a superhero or whatever, but it's, but it's all part of that process and it starts really, really young. Hmm. How do you handle uh, students criticizing other students' work in your class? Do you have them do that? Do you put controls uh, on we, we talk a lot about that. We do a lot of peer editing, and, uh, and we, we do a lot of uh, both uh, praising what works well, because uh, I think it's important to start with that, um, but not so much criticizing what does not work well, but mm-hmm. suggestions to make it better. Okay. With just the way the way that you, we do that wording, which is still getting a point across. It. I mean, they read a lot of really bad writing, and you can give a lot of suggestions to make it better, and that's a very productive way. And kids don't see that in a way that's being uh, that they're being criticized or embarrassed. But it's getting the same point across because they have there's a lot of things they need to do to get it better, um, and that seems to work really well at least with my my kids. 
So what is your your next project, your next writing project? Oh, gosh. Um, my next writing project is, is up in the air. Um, I've... Uh, uh, I feel in some ways overwhelmed with uh, being the father of two young kids who demand a lot of my attention. Um, and I've just got through this, this uh, World Beyond Home book project. It took about four years to write. And, uh, and uh, so I'd, I think if, if I do get a chance to write another book, which I hope to in the, in the coming years, it's going to be something involving this idea of um, uh, kind of the idea of being in the arena and learning to deal with criticism um, as a uh, – as a football coach, this was something that was very prominent, just the idea of, I felt like in a lot of ways I was on, I was on the stage and there were a lot of people behind the stage who could come help me uh, while there were people in the audience who were throwing tomatoes at me. <laughs> and uh, those people behind stage were waiting to see how I would respond, whether I was going to be able to, to do it on my own. And if I was going to be successful, they were going to join me on stage. Right. Uh, but they were waiting in the wings. And so <laughs> to me, I'm really interested in this idea of, of leadership, of uh, taking risks and uh and the, the challenges of taking a risk, knowing that you may have, you may be on stage by yourself. Um, and how do we uh, continue to be brave and take those risks anyway? Uh, which is, to me, is, it's been really important in my life as a, as a teacher. I feel like, you know, most of the things I've done well as a teacher have come from uh, making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. Oh, this is a perfect segue. Stuart, I think you should host this show. Um, so thank you for telling us more about, about what you do, your students, what you've learned. Um, and our very final segment of the show is called Failure is Instructive. Failure is growth. Failure is learning. Failure is one option. In this segment, we remember that it's okay to fail. As the philosopher John Dewey wrote, failure is not mere failure, it is instructive. The person who really thinks learns quite as much from his failures as from his successes. Michael, Katie, what have you learned from your failures this month? Well, I was actually reflecting on this and I said, I know there's several, so let, let's pick let's pick a good one to talk about. <laughs> um, with, without going down in the weeds and the details and things like that, um, uh, heading into uh, this coming uh, program year, for tip. Um, I had this great, wonderful plan drawn up in my head that, of course, I didn't ask for any feedback on. Um, so I tried to roll out this plan uh, about two weeks ago, um, and some, still some really great ideas in it. But um, how, how have I been putting it? Uh, my machine, if, if we're going to go into extended and fractured metaphors here, my machine was very well oiled and all up and running and everything like that. In your, in your head? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay, cool. cool. Um, Just unfortunately the, the road was not paved. There were no gas stations along the way. Um, the other cars were all driving in a different direction. Um, and it turned out that I needed rails for my machine. Um, so I, I think the, uh, the, the, opportunity that I've had over the last couple of weeks to kind of step back and say, oh, no, there are about 37 other people who are on this journey. Oh. Uh, I'm probably going to need to get a bigger car and uh, be able to bring them with me. And then by the time I get them in the car, the, the road will be paved and then we'll all agree where we're going. Oh. So, hmm. Wow. 
feel like I should hitchhike and ask to be brought along. I know. Sounds interesting. I was trying to fit You're in You're one work. of those 37 people, Katie. Oh, oh great. Little do you know. Gosh, we, this is, at the end of this episode, we find out we're actually, we're, we're on the car, too. Mm-hmm. I was trying to work in a, we, uh, we need a bigger bro, bigger boat reference. Oh, but yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we wouldn't need the road to pave. Oh, my gosh. It's too much, the metaphors. Okay. Katie, what have you got? Oh, gosh. I learned, um, you know, everybody's got strengths that are also weaknesses. My perseverance becomes stubbornness pretty easily, and sometimes I shoot myself in the foot. Had a dark episode last Friday when my daughter and I both received our new cell phones at the same time. She had hers up and running and transferred all her data to the new phone in five minutes, literally. Two hours and 15 minutes later, I had refused to give up. I was supposed to get in the car and drive to my nephew's wedding. I still wouldn't give up. And finally, we figured out my phone was broken. And I could sit there for two more weeks, and it wasn't going to do what I wanted it to do. But A, I got so caught up in thinking she got the good phone and I got the bad phone and how unfair that was. (laughs) And B, that I was never going to give up, that I sort of just lost sight of what was most important, which was getting to the wedding, right? So I sort of decided that what I was going to take away from it is when you have a really complicated cas- uh, task to do, leave yourself enough time to do it. I knew I shouldn't have started that before I got on the road. So I'm going to remember that in the future. Did you get to the wedding on time? Oh, yeah. I got to the wedding, and in about 12 weeks, my replacement phone should be oh here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so, Stuart, any failures to share? Yes. Oh, this is, I'm embarrassed as an English teacher to, to share this failure, but... Um, so I have one of my classes is full of some some students who have a, uh, I guess they, they kind of entered my class on the first day, fairly critical of who I am and what we're about. And uh, it's a tough group, a tough group to teach. And uh, so we're, we're doing a lesson on sensory details, and I'm putting the sound of, the taste of, the smell of on the board. And I gave an example, so I wrote the, uh, um, the taste of sweet tea, being in the South, obviously. That's, you know, it was kind of like the... The, the water of my childhood and uh, and, I, and I wrote you know, sweet I wrote sweat tea instead on the board <laughs> and, uh, which is you know interesting in and of itself what sweat tea would taste like so and of course like uh, you know the most like critical kid in the class like she calls me on it oh you wrote sweat tea on the board you didn't write sweet tea you're an English teacher how'd you spell that wrong oh my god and so like my reaction is one I could I could have come up with some convoluted excuse for why I did it and when the reality was like I'm thinking of five things at one time and yeah I just made the mistake I wrote sweat tea up there so I laughed about it and then she started laughing with me and now it's this kind of ongoing thing when she calls me sweat tea but um, <laughs> we, uh, it, it, like, it, it created this it, it just it removed the barrier in the class it's like it's one of my favorite classes now which is one of my favorite students and, but it just uh, was, it was a chance where if I had tried to come up with something to make myself seem more professional I would have wound up looking less professional mm-hmm. and um, so getting back to the being vulnerable and uh, yeah well, I mean if I had been misspelling words right and left that'd be one thing but um, but I, I owned my error and I laughed about it and uh, she saw me as being as a human being mm-hmm. and uh, it made an impact on our class mm-hmm. uh, so my failure is instructive is there was a failure in like April and then it it, it became a success last weekend so that's my story. Uh, so I applied to be a panelist at this uh, conference uh, this past weekend in Seattle, and I didn't get in, didn't hear back, and I just said, oh, well, you know, I tried. It didn't work out. I knew I was going to go anyway, um, and so I went anyway and introduced myself in a meet-and-greet session on Saturday, and I happened to introduce myself very well, I guess. I just was articulate. Um, and the 
woman sitting next to me uh, was part of the programming team and also on the board of the conference. And she asked me to be on a panel the next morning. Oh, great. She was like, can you show up in like less than 12 hours? Can you be there and, and do this panel? You sound really articulate about the topic. We need somebody, a panelist, a panelist uh, didn't show up and flaked on me. It'd be great if you could do this. So then I, I showed up and I did the panel and it was not one I would have thought that I would be on. Um, but I think the I mean, I was going to go anyway, even without being accepted, but it's one of those things where it just is a reminder that um, when you submit something off into the world and nobody sees you, that's a different thing than when you actually show up. Um, and sometimes you just show up anyway, and then and then good things happen. So there's, it was a success for me. It was a good reminder to just be there, and you never know who you're sitting next to, and things can things can shake out differently than when you press submit. Uh, that's a great website. lesson. Just show up. Just show up. If people are wondering why Tracy keeps going to these conferences, <laughs> it's not because she's going to Comic Con or she's a fangirl. But she's a young adult author, and her first essay is coming out from Simon & Schuster. Is that right? What's the book coming 2018, out? 2018. The anthology is coming out in 2018. What's the name of it? Our Stories, Our Voices. Our uh, Stories, Our Voices, yeah. and Tracy Walker again. Look for her essay then. Yeah, yeah. This was a really fun convention. I met a lot of really good people, um, and I'm hoping to be able to go next year. So, And lots of YA readers there and um, lots of fangirls. It was, it was a good time. Uh, so, well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Duke Tip Podcast. Stuart Albright, thanks for joining us. Thank thanks, you so much for having me. Thanks for coming and telling us about your students. Um, tell us, and actually, I want to make sure that we cite your books again. So, the one that just recently came out. It's called A World Beyond Home, and uh, it can be found on Amazon or through my website, stuartalbright.com. Available on Kindle, too. I That's saw right. that That's recently. Right. So, for all of us who can't make their to-be-read pile go down. Just get it on your Kindle. It's like it's not there. Um, and to our listeners out there, you can find Stuart's books on Amazon, as he said, and at other bookstores all over the place. If you have an O, oh, you know what I learned, you'd like to share, or any failures instructives to send in, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to podcast at tip.duke.edu or leave us a voicemail at 919-668-9127. And if you like what you hear... Leave us a review on iTunes. Visit tip.duke.edu to learn all about Duke Tips programs and how you can get involved. Bye-bye.